From Latrobe to Warren, State College to Westchester, this is Lincoln Radio Journal. On this edition, Pennsylvania has finally recovered all the jobs lost during the COVID-19 pandemic. David Taylor from the Pennsylvania Manufacturers Association is joined by Rebecca Euler from the Pennsylvania Motor Truck Association and Stephen Bloom of the Commonwealth Foundation for a Capital Watch Roundtable Discussion. And Jonathan Williams from the American Legislative Exchange Council discusses what can be done about politically motivated public pension investment plans on this week's Lincoln Radio Journal Commentary. I'm Loman Henry, and welcome to Lincoln Radio Journal. We'll get to our Capital Watch crew in just a couple of minutes, but first, news headlines from patownhall.com. The game of musical chairs continues in the state legislature as candidates have been selected for two special elections for state House seats to be held in conjunction with the upcoming May primary election. In the 108th House District, which includes all of Northumberland County, the House seat is open due to the resignation of Linda Schlegel-Culver, who in January won a special election to fill a seat in the state Senate. Republicans have nominated Shikalami School Director Mike Stender, while Democrats have placed Montour County Commissioner Trevor Finn on the ballot. The district leans heavily Republican. Meanwhile, in Delaware County, there will be a special election to fill the seat vacated by former State Representative Mike Zabel, who is forced to resign amid allegations of sexual harassment. That district leans Democrat but could be competitive. With Democrats holding a slim one-vote majority in the State House, this election could become a battleground. Republicans have nominated Army veteran and special education therapist Kathleen Katie Ford for the seat. Democrats have not yet selected their candidate. In the crowded race for the Democratic nomination for mayor of Philadelphia, businessman Jeff Brown has taken a double-digit lead in a recent poll. According to Broad and Liberty, the poll found Brown with 24 percent of the primary vote, as Helen Jim and Ellen Dom tied for second place at 15 percent each. View the poll results with a bit of skepticism, though, as it was commissioned by a PAC supporting Brown. Brown is one of the few candidates with television advertising, as others are just beginning that phase of their campaigns. The winner of the primary is a virtual shoe-in in November, given the city's substantial Democratic voter edge. The Pennsylvania Department of Labor and Industry has released preliminary employment numbers for February. The Commonwealth's unemployment rate rose one-tenth of a percentage point in February to 4.4 percent. The U.S. unemployment rate was up two-tenths of a percentage point from January to 3.6 percent. Pennsylvania's unemployment rate matched its February 2022 level, and the national rate was down two-tenths of a percentage point over last year. Read about all things Pennsylvania at patownhall.com. The good news is Pennsylvania has finally recovered all the jobs lost due to the COVID-19 pandemic. The bad news, it took us six months longer than the rest of the nation. David Taylor from the Pennsylvania Manufacturers Association is joined by Rebecca Euler from the Pennsylvania Motor Truck Association and Stephen Bloom of the Commonwealth Foundation for this Capital Watch discussion. David? And welcome once again to Capital Watch, where we keep an eye on what's happening under the Capitol Dome in Harrisburg for you. I'm your host, David Taylor, President and CEO of the Pennsylvania Manufacturers Association. With me in the studio, your Capital Watch All-Stars from the Pennsylvania Motor Truck Association, President and CEO, Rebecca Euler. Fantastic to be back again, David. So good to see you, Rebecca. And 
from the Commonwealth Foundation, Pennsylvania's free market think tank, Vice President Steve Bloom. Hey, Steve. Hey, David. I appreciate the opportunity to be here today. It's it's always awesome to be together. So uh, once again, fair listeners, we're going to grapple with the public policy issues as we find them. And um, if you get that nagging feeling that somehow Pennsylvania is moving kind of slow, uh, we have more validation of that uh, input, don't we, Steve? Oh, we do, David. We do. And you know, it is. It's it's been sluggish in Pennsylvania. You can it is almost tangible. You can feel it. But here's some some hard cold statistics. Um, as of the other day, the uh, the latest report was issued by the Pennsylvania Department of Labor and Industry, and I'm summarizing a couple of headlines from a, a piece that it, this went out uh, statewide. But this is one from the Philadelphia Inquirer. Their headline was "Months after the rest of the country, Pennsylvania has finally returned to its pre-pandemic job market." In other words, back during 2020, during the peak of the pandemic, with all the lockdowns and all the the business shutdowns Governor Wolf was imposing, our state lost 1.1 million jobs. And as of January 2023, finally, we have recovered those jobs. It's been a long, arduous trail, and we are way behind. The national average, the the U.S. economy got back to the, the existing jobs total way back in July of last year. Wow. And here we are literally seven months behind the curve in Pennsylvania because of our sluggish performance. Well, and I wish I could say that I was surprised. But, you know, this has been a longstanding problem uh, year after year, decade after decade under, you know, governors and, and legislatures of both parties that Pennsylvania has chronically underperformed, that we only ever grow at a fraction of the national average. And this is how over time that, you know, we slowly get left behind. And so to, to you know, have that validated with the statistics that, yes, that, that we've finally caught up, but well after most of the rest of the country has. And it's, it's closing the gate after the horse has already run out of the barn. Yes. How many people went to other states already because they couldn't get work here, there yes. weren't jobs here, and now we lost them from our labor force entirely. Yeah, and I wonder, too, how much of that is related to the fact that we closed down harder and stayed closed longer than a lot of other states did, too. Um, So I just kind of wonder if that was part of it. I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is because, you know, along the way, the the, listeners heard me tell the story that, you know, in other states, manufacturing, my sector, was deemed essential. And so in states like, like Georgia, manufacturing never closed. And um, and yeah, so that many Pennsylvania businesses, including, of course, an awful lot of small businesses, were essentially suffocated to death because yeah. they were ordered to not operate. Nobody was given time or, or the chance to cope, uh, you know, to restructure operations, to interact with consumers in a new way that would enable them to, to continue um, in business. So, yeah, I don't doubt that the uh, the draconian nature of Pennsylvania's lockdown made things worse. Well, and we've talked in the past that the small business startup rate in Pennsylvania is much lower here than it is in other other states. Um, and when you lose those small business jobs, which we did lose a lot of small business jobs during the pandemic for the very reason you talked about, David, um, they don't 
come back real quickly. So I think we're we're not back to where we were with small business startups and entrepreneurial, you know, um, activity in the state, and that's probably a big part of it too. What else did the Inquirer pass along there, Steve? Well, there were there were a number of experts talked to and for the article, and and uh, one of them suggested in particular that the fact that we have an older population relative to other states means we have a more limited workforce, mm-hmm. and that has all sorts of repercussions. And that has all sorts of – there's all sorts of reasons for that. And yes. I, I just – thinking about a laundry list of things, and we can dig into any of these, but thinking about our tax policy here in Pennsylvania, our tax climate compared to other states, not as vibrant, harder to, 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 to be successful because of the high and cumbersome tax rates. Regulatory overreach here in Pennsylvania. We've talked about that in other episodes of this show. Uh, the lack of, of – Good options for parents who are interested in schools alternative to district schools, especially in urban areas where the the traditional brick-and-mortar district schools just aren't performing. There's a very low proficiency rate in the basic skills, and yet uh, we're stuck with those schools. And, again, parents are fleeing from that. Uh, Infrastructure issues with with our, our not only our highway infrastructure but our public works, railroads, all those sorts of things. Um, The overreach, we've talked about that because during the COVID pandemic, how – our, our state government was particularly particularly draconian in its response. And then the cost of living itself, the cost of complying with all the, these these things we've just talked about. Right. And the – so to get to the, the heart of the matter, at least for me, you know, Pennsylvania has a, a demographic crisis that we have, um, you know, a large and growing population of – older folks who are beyond, you know, their 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 working years, those senior citizens um, tend to require more taxpayer-funded services. And of course, you know, we have a solemn obligation to, to upkeep those, those promises. So um, – but because we're not economically dynamic, that we don't have – uh, a growing base of opportunity for people seeking, you know, jobs and, and livelihoods. And so because we're always below the national average in that economic growth rate, that you have, you know, younger people go off somewhere else to, you know, to to pursue work and inevitably wherever they find work, that that's where they, you know, they build their lives, they start their families and and that this is part of the, you know, continuing exodus of people from Pennsylvania. It's also one of the drivers of our budget problems in Harrisburg. Um, if you ever hear people talk about a structural deficit, what that means is that mandatory spending, like on social programs, is increasing by a larger amount than the natural growth of the economy and the the revenues for the Commonwealth that would be uh, paid at current rates. So, so that means that year over year, we get a little further behind. And of course, that's you know, one of the main, you know, concerns about, um, well, any budget, but of course, with this this year's budget that that the state coffers seem kind of flush because we still have we've retained a lot of the temporary, um, you know, federal stimulus spending and federal COVID money. So but the thing is, how do we fix that long term problem over time? How do we write the ship so that younger people, people in their working years will choose to stay in Pennsylvania, maybe even come to Pennsylvania, so that our overall economy is growing 
strongly enough, quickly enough, that it'll generate the revenues that we need to fulfill all of those promises that we've made to to people who get money from taxpayer-funded programs. And I think it was maybe a dozen or so years that the term started to be circulated, uh, a, a phrase, demographic winter. And it symbolizes or describes the situation that has been facing many countries around the world, especially some of the European countries, uh, a few in Asia, where population was simply not replicating itself. Correct. Uh, there weren't enough kids being born. And, and that hasn't gone away. And, and Pennsylvania is experiencing something like that, about partially not only because of, of just the overall trends in society to, to not have as many children, but also because of the attractiveness of other states compared to Pennsylvania. So to, to start to reverse this trend, our, you know, our, like you mentioned, we can't run our, our economy, our state budget, whatever you want to look at, whatever metric you want to look at, if we don't, if we don't have a growing population. That, right. is, that is the fuel that drives it, our, our, our market economy. Yes, and a growing population of people who are in their working years. Productive. Um, yes, productive because, citizens. Because yes. you know, Pennsylvania also has tax policy that is very favorable to – uh, to retirees and people who are beyond their working years. Rebecca, I know you've got something to add to all this. Well, I was just sitting here thinking as we're talking about um, uh, all of these trends. And really, I think uh, as we're talking about how do we grow, how do we grow our population here? How do we attract people to Pennsylvania? Um, which is really the underlying um, you know, way that we fix the economic issues that we're talking about, right? Um, we have so many assets here in Pennsylvania, and I think that's what's most frustrating to me is how we can't seem to take advantage of those assets. We are an amazing state, um, and I'm a native Pennsylvanian. You know, I come from Franklin County, and I love Pennsylvania, and I like to talk about how great a state we live in. We have some great assets here. Uh, we have a wonderful... Um, diverse state here. Um, and I know a lot of young people out there who really appreciate the diversity of our natural environment, mm -hmm. of the fact that we have some beautiful cities, as well as some beautiful, you know, right. um, natural resources here, um, and, and rural areas and farm areas too. So the diversity of the state is a huge asset, I think. So taking that a bit farther, one of our other assets is our energy resources. So obviously, our um, natural gas resources, our other um, incredible energy resources, that we have in this state that we're trying to take advantage of, but are limited somewhat by things like regulatory burdens. Um, that's an asset that we really need to take advantage of. And the third thing I would say is education. We have an amazing educational, um, higher educational system here in the Commonwealth. The problem is that we, we graduate those kids and they move out of state. So those are the three great assets just off the top of my head. Yeah. I think we need, to, we need to use those assets so that we can take advantage. And all that's true. You're listening to Capital Watch. I'm your host, David Taylor from Pennsylvania Manufacturers. With me, Rebecca Euler from the Pennsylvania Motor Truck Association and Steve Bloom from the Commonwealth Foundation. And Rebecca, you, you are absolutely spot on that Pennsylvania has enormous enormous inherent advantages, our geographic location, our access to market, um, our natural resources, including almost unlimited fresh water, yeah, massive energy reserves. We are number one in electricity uh, export. We are number two in natural gas production. We're number two in coal production. And, um, you know, you're talking about the other things. We've got mature financial institutions. We have so many uh, excellent institutions of higher education. And, like, these are things that 
that that our competitor states, if they don't have these advantages, you know, they're they're jealous for them. But yeah, because absolutely. of the, because of the dumb things that we do to ourselves uh, as a result of state public policy, that you know we can't get out of our own way, and as a result, you know, we wind up. Again, chronically underperforming, and you know, as I, as the listeners have heard me say many times, it is not good enough to just be slightly less bad than New York and New Jersey. We need to aspire to something better. We need to benchmark Pennsylvania against the high-performing states, and we need our leaders to do the work to actually move the needle on these very important competitiveness factors. Imagine if our tax environment in Pennsylvania was such that we were we taxed generally less than folks in other states taxed. Imagine if uh, we did not have a cumbersome set of multiple local, municipal, state-level taxes on top of mm-hmm. all the federal taxes that folks that mm-hmm. folks pay. Yes. We have this complex array of taxes. It's a hodgepodge. It's hard to even figure out what the best incentives are, the best way to, to lower your tax burden. We literally have to employ experts to advise us on how to plan for our tax burden in Pennsylvania. What if we didn't have that? What if we had a simple, clear, relatively low tax structure? What if the, what if the Commonwealth acted like a partner in regulatory compliance and actually worked with their customers, meaning Pennsylvania citizens and Pennsylvania businesses, to to show them how to comply with the law rather than having this adversarial gotcha, um, you know, fine and, 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 and penalized mentality. And that's exactly what when we talk about entrepreneurial and small business startups. That is a huge problem for them, having to comply with all of the regulations and the tax structure that the state has is very complicated. And, it's, and again, it just it doesn't need to be that way. And when you benchmark Pennsylvania against the high performing states, those states do have a red carpet concierge service with with in, with new investors who want to come to their states so that their you know state version of of what we call DCED it works with that new business, shows them what they need to do, and then helps them to do it to make sure that all the paperwork is correct and that all of that is seamless so nothing inhibits the actual you know, investment, construction of the site, employment of people. I mean, it stings because it's true, but the governor of Arkansas, uh, 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 Asa Hutchinson, you know, he talked about the investment by U.S. Steel. He said, we can build here – before they can permit in Pennsylvania. And it hurts because it's true. But think about that. Somebody could actually build a factory and be operational before you could even get the permits to build in, in Pennsylvania. It's it's perverse. But again, we do it to ourselves. Yeah, I think the difference there is a state that sees a business as an asset rather than an adversary. Yes, yes. And, it's, and again, this is another fundamental concept. Is the private sector, is it a garden to be tended or is it a beast of burden to be whipped? Uh, you have an awful lot of, of people in Harrisburg who just view, uh, you know, who, who view the, the makers and the doers as, uh, you know, as, as, as beasts of burden. And that's not and that's not right. People can, people don't have to live like that and they can choose to leave and too often they do. And thinking about unnecessary bureaucracies. In Pennsylvania, we have a public school system that is built around a model primarily of brick-and-mortar district schools assigned by zip code. 500 districts, 
500 layers of superintendents and administrative overhead for for a state that is not producing stellar results. Mm-hmm. We're in fact producing dropping our results are, are continuing to drop year by year. We're losing our place amongst the states that have high performing students who do well, but yet the cost, the amount we're paying for that is rising right. and rising rather rapidly. So we're seeing this this scenario where kids are not as doing as well in school as they used to in Pennsylvania. We're paying more for the privilege of, of we're, we're paying more to provide that education, but yet they're not, they're not right. succeeding with it. And other states are eating our lunch by offering all sorts of innovative choice programs. Just again, in the past week or so, uh, Florida now became the, the largest state to adopt a universal school choice bill signed by the governor in Florida, now implemented. They were already light years ahead of Pennsylvania as it was. Right. Now they're making that competitive state even more competitive because parents are going to want to go there mm-hmm. because there they literally get the money that goes with the child right. and they can pick the school that best suits their families. Yes. And that's happening. That's happened in about 10 states this year already. If we don't get on that train, yeah. we're going to, again, be left behind at the station, and because, it's going to hurt our kids. Yeah, because the only way that you get accountability is through competition. And, and, and there's nothing that will fuel competitiveness more for those schools to perform well is the concept that parents can take their kids, go anywhere they want, and that the money, all the money – goes with the kid. That will p- make people uh, wake up and, and, and pay attention. Well, and we know from the statistics that Florida is one of the states where folks are moving out of uh, Pennsylvania to. So um, that will unfortunately yeah. probably make things it's, worse. It's a never-ending battle, as we say. But anyway, well, it's been wonderful to have uh, you guys here. Thanks to all the listeners for you know taking part of your day and, and being here with us. But to wrap up, um, Steve, where can people go to learn more about you and your group and the things that you do? They can visit commonwealthfoundation.org on the internet. Outstanding. And Rebecca, where can people learn more about you and your group? They can find the Pennsylvania Motor Truck Association at pmta.org. Outstanding. And as ever, you can find me online at pamanufacturers.org and on Sunday mornings at 830 on the Pennsylvania Cable Network with PMA Perspective. So, you know, once again, from Steve and Rebecca and me, thanks to all of you for listening, and we will catch you next time on Capital Watch. And now, a town hall commentary from Jonathan Williams. Just this week, President Joe Biden issued his very first veto of his administration, which rejected a bipartisan resolution from Congress that would have protected pensions from politicized investment strategies like the ESG, or environmental, social, and governance ideas that we've been hearing far too much about in recent years. The effort from Congress was a smart effort to rebuke a new rule from the Biden Department of Labor that allows money managers to use ESG investing as a default plan option. ESG has taken the financial industry by storm in recent years and has become a serious threat to financial health of both private and public retirement plans. Some investment firms and state pension systems have taken to using ESG investing strategies with government pension plans and have even used their control of proxy votes to influence the company's decisions in ways that go against financial interests of the states. Unfortunately, the cost of these strategies is ultimately borne by the plan beneficiaries, the retirees, and ultimately all of us as taxpayers. As shown in the ALEC report, Unaccountable and Unaffordable, that I helped put together, 
the state pension plans are shockingly $8.2 trillion in the red. That's right. That's over $25,000 for every man, woman, and child in the United States. Any politically-based investing is going to make that problem much worse. President Biden and his allies claim that not using ESG investment strategies would, quote, put at risk retirement savings of individuals across the country, unquote. Talk about getting it backwards. As new research from my friend Andy Puzder and Mike Edelson show, ESG investing yields lower returns than investing without political constraints. Our Alex Center for State Fiscal Reform Research has also highlighted longstanding work showing that broad-based investing that is politically agnostic produces the best financial gains over even a 50-year period. Outside of policy and academia, examples from states like California also confirm that politically-based investing is alarmingly detrimental to public sector workers and retirees. Back in 2001, California's largest pension system, CalPERS, decided to sell off or divest from all tobacco-related stocks. Fast forward to numbers produced 16 years after that happened, and tobacco stock divestment has cost California pensioners a whopping $3.5 billion, according to estimates cited by the Wall Street Journal. Public retirement savings are severely underfunded as it is, and it's clear that ESG or other politically-based investing would only serve to make them more underfunded at the expense of beneficiaries and taxpayers. So what can be done about this politically motivated investing? Well, ALEC model policy that was developed last year called the State Government Employee Retirement Protection Act outlines some key strategies to combating the use of politically motivated investing in pension plans at the state level, such as the sole interest rule in the model policy that says that fiduciaries are legally obligated to make investments in the sole interest of plan participants and their beneficiaries for the exclusive purpose of providing financial benefits over time. Fiduciaries should not be able to invest in their own pet projects unless somehow they can show that that investment is in the sole interest of the participant and their beneficiaries. In this investment climate, it's difficult enough for the very best money managers out there to make money when they're focusing on making money, let alone when they don't focus on getting the best financial return. Several states are working to implement these ideas already based on ALEC model policy. Montana may be the very first to cross the finish line in a number of days, where Governor Greg Gianforte is expected to sign the model policy into law. The Arizona Senate, the Georgia Senate, and the Oklahoma House of Representatives have each passed their own bills, including the sole interest rule based on ALEC model policy. The efforts in Georgia and in Oklahoma were passed unanimously, proving that keeping politics out of pensions is a bipartisan, common-sense issue. Once again, states are leading the way on an essential issue like this one. While President Joe Biden's veto is unsurprising, given the huge special interest groups who lobby every day for politically-based investing, the bipartisan free market efforts in the states to keep politics out of pension should give us hope that state lawmakers across the country will continue to lead the way to protect the funding of their pension systems, ultimately protecting the workers, the retirees, and American taxpayers in every single state across the country. For more information, visit alec.org.
I'm Jonathan Williams. Thanks for listening. If you miss hearing Lincoln Radio Journal on your favorite radio station, audio of our complete program is available on our websites, lincolnradiojournal.com and lincolninstitute.org. For 28 years, Lincoln Radio Journal has been heard on public affairs-minded radio stations throughout the Commonwealth, including WTKT-AM in Harrisburg, WHHS-FM in Havertown, along with WDAD-AM in Indiana, Pennsylvania. The Lincoln Radio Journal is produced weekly by the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. The Lincoln Institute is completely funded through the generosity of individuals, corporations, and philanthropic foundations, including the Pennsylvania Manufacturers Association, the Allegheny Foundation of Pittsburgh, and the Houston Foundation of Coatesville, all of whom have helped to underwrite the costs of this program. Lincoln Radio Journal is a trademark of the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. Comments and opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Lincoln Institute or of this radio station. From the Lincoln Broadcast Center in Harrisburg, I'm Loman Henry. Thank you for listening to Pennsylvania's most widely broadcast public affairs radio program, Lincoln Radio Journal, plug into the pulse of Pennsylvania.